Well, good morning, everyone. It is good to be here with you this morning as we are going to move along in the scriptures. But before we get into the scriptures, just want to real quick ask you if you've signed up for a Thrive group yet. And if you haven't, I want to encourage you to do that. Um, Erica is sending out emails for you to get involved in that. And it's so important, especially during a time like this, to get into fellowship and community together with other believers and to study the Word of God. So I encourage you, get into a Thrive group. Make that a part of your fall. If you're like, there's no way I can make it a part of my fall, then I'm going to be coming and looking at you in the winter to get into a Thrive group. Such an important part of church life. Um, if you will, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Now, if you're unfamiliar with how to find Acts, there's kind of two easy ways to do that. One is to open up your phone, get a Bible app, and type in Acts 2. But the other way is you can find it in the back third of the Bible called the New Testament. And there's four books that come before it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then comes the book of Acts and we're continuing along in this series that I am calling The Core. Now, why are we looking at the core of the faith in Acts 1 and 2? Well, I really have been asking a big question lately in the midst of this global pandemic. And the question that I'm asking myself, but I'm asking of you, is why do you come to church? Now, you can distill down the reasons why people come to church, and I think there's several reasons, but I think that I've distilled it down to four typical reasons that I hear people as they express why they're coming. One explanation is they, they talk about it in terms of programs. There is some specific need that I have, and there's some niche ministry in the church that meets that need, and that's why I go to church whether that's a children's program or a youth program, or maybe there is a, a personal issue that you're dealing with, or maybe there's just some kind of common interest that people seem to gather around. Now, closely linked with program is the idea of place, and that's where the church facility is extra nice. I mean, they've got a coffee cafe. There's a McDonald's play place for the kids. This place is awesome. Another reason that I hear has something to do with people. Now, I don't mean that as in people in general. I mean that as in special friend groups, people. There are people that you've connected with in the church and have formed close relationships. And so you keep coming back because of those relationships the fourth, and you'll see some churches grow big around this, has to do with the personality of the leader. That's right. People come because either one, the, the leader's a commanding presence and they kind of give us those marching orders so we always know what we're supposed to do or they're motivational. They get up and speak and after you leave church, you feel so inspired or they're laid back and, you know, you feel really comfortable as they're communicating to you. But let me ask you, out of all those reasons, programs, place, people, personality. Are those sustainable reasons? What do I mean by that? I mean sustainable in the sense of over the long haul that will keep you in the Christian faith. Well, 
Think of it like this. I was just recently looking at some articles, and I'd heard of this phenomenon for a while ago, but I, I wanted to explore it a little more, that for all of those reasons that I just listed, atheists were forming churches. So they were dubbed in 2012, they launched out of Great Britain, and then they came over to America, atheist megachurches. And they were growing pretty well in 2013, growing exponentially. In 2014, I heard that they even had one weekend where the church doubled overnight. Now, that's crazy when you think about it. One of the founders of the atheist movement, or church movement, said that he came up with the idea after attending a, a church-affiliated event. He said, if you think about church, there's very little that's bad. It's singing awesome songs, hearing interesting talks, thinking about improving yourself and helping other people, and doing that in a community of wonderful relationships. What part of that is not to like? And I watched one of the recaps of the services because I was like, I got to see what this is all about. And I'll tell you, if they didn't get up and say, we're an atheist church, I would have watched the service and thought, this is just an everyday, ordinary congregation of Christians, maybe on Christianity light. There's also a great comedic sketch out there. Are you guys familiar with Tim Hawkins? Okay, so after you meditate on the Bible and church, then you can go on to YouTube, and he has a funny sketch that you can watch today where he talks about what kind of songs atheists would sing at atheist church. So go check that out, okay? Are you going to do it? You can talk behind the mask, by the way. Just want you to know that. Well, I think we're beginning to gather as we talk through this that, you know, these really aren't reasons, ultimate reasons of why we would come to church. And that's why we're getting into this series core. Because in Acts 1 and 2, there are four core realities, elements that caused this church to form. The first we saw last week was the Messiah the second we're looking at today, which is the message, and then next week we'll look at the mission, and then we'll end it with the members. These were the things that brought the church together, and these are the things Thank that we God need to remember even day. as we're going through a time like this. That was interesting. So let's open up our Bibles, Acts 2, and we're going to read the first four churches, uh, four verses with the coming of the Spirit. They threw me off, didn't they? All right. The passage opens, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So we pick up the story with a church that has been in waiting. Uh, Fifty days after the Sabbath following Passover was this holiday or festival called Pentecost. And so the church had Jesus after the resurrection for 40 days. And it would seem then that they've been waiting for well over a week for this promise that he made. He told them in Acts 1-4 to wait until the Father sends the promise. 
What did he mean by wait? Well, he meant it like this. Look, I need you to wait because I've got an important message that you are to deliver. And this message is going to be the common message that brings a diverse community of members together. And those members are going to have a life-driving mission to take that message to the world. But you can't do it on your own. If you try to do this mission in your own power, in your own way, it is destined to fail. So I need you to wait. And Luke picks up the story in Acts that the Spirit comes suddenly or out of nowhere. There's a, a, a rushing wind sound that comes from heaven and fires, uh, a fire of divided tongues rests on the people. Now that Symbolism of fire that God uses with the Holy Spirit is important because when you look at the scripture, fire tends to correlate with God's presence. We saw that in the burning bush with Moses, right? God spoke to Moses and he told him to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And when God brought Israel out of slavery, he led them with what? A pillar of fire. So here... In this moment, God's divine presence is resting on these 120 Christians in the person of the Holy Spirit. Quick quiz from last week. I said that the Spirit has a primary job on his job description. Do you remember what that is? I think you do, hopefully. We said it's not to do with primarily power, right? Or purity, or even performance like giving us spiritual gifts. No, it's about mediating the presence of Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit comes, he directs the disciples to do what? To go out into the streets and talk about Jesus. When the Holy Spirit's working in the church, the church becomes more in love with Jesus, wants to do things Jesus's way, and becomes more like Jesus. Now verse 5 tells us that that sound of rushing wind caught the attention of the crowd. And this crowd was different Jews who had gathered from diverse nations. And when they heard the disciples speak, the text says they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And what's more, the speakers are a bunch of uneducated Galileans. How is this happening? Now, their command of the language is remarkable. Verse 8, they ask, how is it that we hear each in our own native language? I think one of the miraculous elements of this moment of Pentecost is that they are speaking as if they were a native Okay, that's how I think we're to understand that. So they're using their diverse vocabulary, their idiomatic expressions, and it even sounds in terms of accent like someone from that nation speaking to them. That's incredible. Have uh, you ever been on a show like The Voice or something like that and watched some of the international singers that sing our songs and they sing them so well, it sounds like an American singing the song. I'm always blown away when I hear that because that is an incredible skill. And here we see the Holy Spirit 
enabling the disciples to do this on the day of Pentecost. What does that tell us about God? That he would communicate to people in their heart language. Well, over and over again, we're looking at the scriptures and we're seeing that our God is a missionary God. He doesn't expect the nations to come to him and learn his language and understand things in his way. No, he goes out to the nations and communicates to the nations in their heart language. I think of a passage like Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Now, it's in that sense of who God is that we as a church feel called to be on mission. And I'm so thankful for our missionaries of our church. Um, thinking in the multi-purpose room, they're sitting in the back right corner, Becky and Corey Coogan. I mentioned them last week, but that's what they're essentially called to do on mission is to go to a nation and communicate scripture to someone in their heart language. And our missionaries all over the world do that. So that's our job then. If they're over there doing that, our job is to what? Support them and pray for them. Do you guys pray for our missionaries? I hope you do. Now, as we continue on in the story, we see that just like the ministry of Jesus, the reaction of the crowd to Pentecost is mixed. Look at verses 12 to 13. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. So right here, we see a diversity of reactions. Remember that whenever God moves in a place, you're going to see mixed reactions. Some will be amazed. Some will question endlessly. And others are going to mock it. But here's the thing. God doesn't do his mission because of public opinion. He doesn't go and take out poll samples and say, well, I'm going to take this particular position because most people are in agreement on it. No, God does it because he's God. And he knows what he's doing. And his church needs to step into the mission with that same level of confidence. As we pick up, Peter preaches a message in reaction to this accusation of drunkenness. And he kind of starts the message with a joke. He says in verse 14, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, basically saying, guys, look, it's a little too early for that right now, okay? They're not drunk. Now, here we have clear scriptural evidence that the first sermon preached by a Christian preacher had a corny joke at the front end. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And I'm really thankful that Peter didn't start the sermon off with singing, it's five o'clock somewhere. Now, the message that he's launching into is the message. What's the message? 
It's the gospel. What does gospel mean? Well, William Tyndale, back in 1525, defined it like this, evangelium, the Greek word for gospel, where we derive evangelism and evangelical. Evangelium is a Greek word signifying good, merry, glad, and joyful news that makes a man's heart glad and makes him sing and dance and leap for joy. And and Tyndale believed that the message was so gladdening to the heart that he wanted to get that message to everyone in the English-speaking world by making a translation of the Bible that they could read in their heart language. And he was so committed to that belief that he sealed it with martyr's blood. Now, why is it good news? Well, the gospel's good news first because you don't have to earn your way to God. Why is that good news? Well, that's good news because guess what? If we had to earn our way to God, well, there would really only be a spiritual class of gurus that could make their way to God because most of us, we'd be looking at our lives and saying, I don't know if I could do what it takes. The gospel's good news because God levels the playing field by saying it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus did, and Jesus paid it all. It's like a long-awaited telephone call. Have you ever set up an appointment with a friend that you haven't seen for a long time, and when that time comes and you hear the phone ring, you run to the phone? You're so glad to get to catch up with them and hear what's going on. That's the kind of good news we're talking about here. Now, each generation must pick up their Bible and rediscover the centrality of this gospel that we're talking about and seek to live it. As I shared last week, churches can easily drift away from their raison d'etre. They can easily become distracted with other things. Or, as we saw this morning, individually, we can go about our Christian walk for the wrong reasons, reasons that even atheists find that they can gather around. Now, I hope that disturbs you so that we can look at the gospel afresh this morning and see how important it is to center our faith and our commonality around this message. So let's take a look at Peter's sermon, and we'll make some points about this gospel from there. So pick up with me, we're in Acts 2, and we're going to pick up at verse 14 as he delivers this sermon. Peter says, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now notice there, Peter quotes Joel 2 to explain what's happening on Pentecost. And Joel said, and in the last days it will be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So here is fulfillment of Joel's prophecy and Joel's prophesying about the last days when the spirit would come. Now, when you're thinking about the last days, you're saying to yourself, this is like when God's going to bring history to an end. But Peter is preaching this as a partial fulfillment of that prophecy. The spirits come, which means that the end times are unraveling before us. 
Well, what does it mean if the end times are unraveling before us? It means you need to get right with God. You need to know him. You need to live for him. Well, how do I do that, Peter? Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is that? That Lord. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, and you yourselves know this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and now he quotes Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, and he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the moment of the resurrection of the Christ. But he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I want us to notice some key elements about the gospel from this message. In Acts, this is the first preaching of the gospel. The first thing I want you to notice is that it's a message from God. Okay, in order to accept or embrace the gospel, you have to believe certain things about God. Uh, we might hear that and say to ourselves, well, okay, that's fine. Don't most people agree on most things about God? And it turns out, and I think you've already gathered the answer to this, that most people don't necessarily at all agree on the same thing about God. What do we have to know about God? Well, first, we have to believe that God exists. Secondly, we have to believe that he is God. What does that mean? It means that he created the universe. He created us. And if he's the creator, he also has the right to rule the creation that he made. Thirdly, we have to believe that God has spoken or communicated about himself. See, truly what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, Peter, as he's addressing his audience, he doesn't have to reclaim that ground in any sort of way. He's speaking to devout Jews who are in Jerusalem, and they all agree that God exists and that he's God and that God has spoken. 
So now his job is to help them to see that Jesus is the Lord that Joel was talking about. But that wasn't the case with Paul later on in Acts. In Acts 17, Paul goes into the city of Athens and he speaks with the great philosophers and thinkers of Athens. And as they give him voice to speak, he says to them, look, I can see that you guys are spiritual people. And I even noticed in your city that there was a statue that said to an unknown God. So let me just tell you a little bit about this God And he sets up the gospel like that and then takes them into the person of Jesus. So when you think about our culture, the United States of American culture, which audience are we more like? Are we more like the audience that Peter was speaking to where he could take it for granted that they believe the same things about God, that they understand the truth about God? Or is our culture more like Paul's audience that is all confused about who God is. I would submit to you that we are more like Paul's audience. That our culture has become increasingly more confused about who God is because we've decided to invent our own lowercase g God. We want God to kind of be the type of God that makes us feel comfortable and appreciates the things we appreciate. Now here's the point. If we completely miss who God is and why we need to have a right relationship with God, we are going to spend our life spinning our religious wheels. We're not going to connect with the true God. We're not going to find a relationship with this God and forgiveness with this God. We're not going to receive eternal life. I think of it kind of like fishing, right? You need something really important when you're going fishing. You need fish to be in the water, okay? I could take my son, Zach, who loves fishing, and give him a rod and a a great lure and put him in front of Dean's swimming pool and say, cast to your heart's content. Now, is Zach fishing? No. He's practicing or maybe playing pretend, but he's not fishing, Fishermen know that in order to fish, you must go where the fish are. The same thing's true when it comes to religion. I can say I'm religious all day. But if you worship the wrong God, if you're praying to nothing, you're just playing pretend. Then who is this God? Well, the real God is the God of the Bible the creator God who made us in his image, the God whom we committed the mega offense against. What was that? We sinned against him. We denied his right to be God. We determined that we could establish the course of our life and live life the way we wanted to live it. But this same God is a loving God. In fact, he has a massive love for us. How do we know that? He loved us so much that he sent his son into the world to die in our place. That's how much he loved us. If you want to be religious, truly religious, truly connecting with God, then you have to come to this God on his terms and in his way. I want you to see something else about the gospel. The gospel 
is a message that depends on the Old Testament. God has spoken, like I said. That's why here at our church, we open up the Bible every Sunday. Uh, We don't talk about other topics and talk around the Bible. We open the Bible and we let the Bible speak for itself. Now, there's great works out there. There's good books, books on philosophy and science and life and practical books and good op-eds that are written by great thinkers, great works of literature. And sometimes I even insert those great works into a message to illustrate this. But all of those works are not good enough because they're fallible. They come from the mind of a human being. Scripture is infallible because it is the very words of God. And if Scripture speaks, we should take it seriously. Uh, Peter's preaching of the gospel heavily depended on his exposition or explaining of the Old Testament. That's why we tend to take passages one at a time or center on a text Because good preaching does what? It says what the Bible says, and it explains it, and this is how we should accept it and believe it and live it. People don't get saved when they hear emotional stories. That's all they hear. They get saved when they hear the word of God preached. Now, I want to take a special moment and just talk about the fact that Peter's using the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is a book of the Bible that's come under disrepute over the years. Where basically people look at the Old Testament and they ask the question, is this kind of past A? Should we still look at the Old Testament? In fact, uh, there's been some controversy in the evangelical world. A prominent preacher came out and argued this. The problem with the modern church is our incessant habit of reaching back into old covenant concepts. And when he was saying old covenant concepts, he was essentially saying the Old Testament. He then went on to ask leaders, would you consider unhitching your teaching of what it means to follow Jesus from all things old covenant? His point was this, when it comes to the stumbling box of the faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list preventing people from coming to God. Now, that's not an uncommon thing that's said. Like I said, a lot of people are like, can't we just kind of stick with those parables of Jesus that are a little more friendly or those portions of the New Testament letters that are a little more encouraging? Now, stay away from the other stuff in the New Testament, but the encouraging stuff, we can deal with that because let's just be honest. The Old Testament, you have like the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. How do I deal with that? There's these bloody sacrificial systems. Uh, There's all kinds of things that just don't seem to square with how I think today. Let me tell you the problem with this line of thinking. That line of thinking is lazy and it's incoherent. Why do I say lazy? Well, lazy because people say things like, The God of the Old Testament is wrathful. The God of the New Testament is gracious. That's just a lazy, downright lazy statement. You don't know what you're talking about if you say that. You just, you haven't read the Bible cover to cover, or if you did read it, you didn't understand it. 
the message of the Bible is not that there is some kind of distinction between an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. He's the same God through Genesis all the way to Revelation. Now, why is it incoherent? It's incoherent because the New Covenant depends upon the Old Covenant. You don't get to a New Covenant without understanding the Old Covenant, And that's why Peter here is preaching the Old Testament. He's saying, look, my argument hinges on the reality that these prophecies are being fulfilled today. We're speaking in the Holy Spirit because Joel spoke and and Jesus rose again from the dead. And that's fulfillment of Psalm 16. And we know this because as we look at the Old Testament fulfillment and what happened in history, David didn't rise again from the dead. Jesus did that he must be Lord. Now think about it like this. The message doesn't just depend on the Old Testament, but it also depends on history, that God came to us to save us through Jesus. History matters. When Peter's emphasizing Joel 2.32, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, most of the Jews sitting there say, I agree with that statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord except for when you define what Lord means and who Lord is. So he defends historically that Jesus meets all of the requirements of being this Lord that we would call upon. Look at Acts 2, 22 to 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So he grounds his argument in historic events that fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Now, notice that two historic events are core elements of the gospel. That's verses 23 and 24. Such a simple message, two events. Jesus died, Jesus rose again. That's, friends, that's the gospel. Now, I have to go on and elaborate a little bit about what that means, but when you break it down to the history, Jesus died, Jesus rose again. Why did he die? Well, he died innocently. He died because I was supposed to die. He died in my place. What does it mean that he rose again from the dead? It means that he conquered death in real time. Now, this matters, this historical nature of the faith matters because a historical faith is a coherent faith. An ahistorical faith is a fanciful myth. People believe religions around the world that set themselves up basically on the context of existential thoughts and philosophy. There's nothing historical to the claims that validate the claims that they make. The Christian faith, however, is a history type of faith, the kind of faith where someone can say, well, I don't believe that Jesus rose again from the dead, and you look back at them and say, that's fine, but there's a lot of evidence that I think you should weigh before you make a decision like that. A a faith that is so historical that the first believers, the witnesses that he talks about, 
were willing to die for the faith. They saw the risen Jesus. It was so imprinted on their memory and their mind that they were never going to stand before a council and say, no, that didn't happen. I was just thinking about how major historical events leave an imprint on our brain just this last Friday, September 11th. You remember when Alan Jackson wrote in 2002, where were you when the world stopped turning? And as you listen to that song, all of us resonate with it and relate to it. Why? Because you remember where you were. You remember the people that were around you. You remember the place where you were standing when that first tower was hit. Historical events leave a lasting imprint on your mind. So how much more so than that would those first disciples have remembered seeing the risen Jesus, someone who died in front of them and someone who walked out of the grave? Our good news requires historical fact. Good news says, let me tell you about what has happened. It's not good ideas. It's not good advice. No, the gospel is an announcement about what God has done through Jesus. And then there's a response. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What Lord? Well, the Lord that fulfilled the Old Testament promises, the Lord that died and rose again in real time, in real history. Before we close, we're about to land the plane. I want us to see one last point. It's a message of salvation that exclusively rests on Jesus. Look at verse 36. Now, this is the conclusion that Peter takes the crowd to. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, what does that mean if Jesus is Lord and Christ? It means that he's the only person who can meet the requirements that God has for salvation. Acts 4.12, Peter makes it more clear. He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's only in trusting Jesus as the Messiah that we can be saved. And the passage shows us that the crowd responds. In Acts 2.41, it says, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now this exclusive message is exclusive in the sense that you can only believe in Jesus to be saved, but it's inclusive, universally inclusive, in the sense that anyone from any background, from any kind of past or history or ethnicity uh, can come to Jesus and put their faith in him. That's incredibly inclusive. But the message does ask something of us. Well, it's true that good news means Jesus paid it all. It's also true that we must believe that news to receive the benefits of it. What does it mean to believe something? Well, I can tell you what it doesn't mean. <laughs> it doesn't mean our modern English concept of belief, like I believe in capitalism and economics and that kind of stuff, and we mean it in the sense of I understand what that is, I think it's a good idea, and I like it. Okay, 
take that and apply it to belief in Jesus, and it goes something like this. I believe like Jesus is the son of God, and he died on the cross for my sins, just like I believe in global warming and apple pie is good for me. That doesn't work. That doesn't cut it. The massive love of God calls for more and creates more than just passive, mild agreement with something. Ray Ortland writes, Real belief destroys aloofness. It moves us from self-completeness into Christ-completeness. We stop treating him as a religious garnish to be placed on the side of life. Rather, we find in him our all. He becomes our new sacred center. We gladly lose ourselves in who he is for desperate sinners. I want to be really forgiven of my real sin by a real savior. Church, this message about this Messiah is why we exist. What happens when we remove all of the trappings from the church? The programs. Maybe some of the people. (laughs) Never had a preacher with personality. What happens? Well, if we're following Jesus, nothing happens because Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What happens when I remove those trappings from the atheist church? Well, what has been happening in the last couple of years is they've been experiencing decline. Why? Well, one of the leaders said it like this. You can't just meet for the sake of community itself. You need a very powerful, motivating element to keep people coming. Something that the attendees have in common, which means you need a gravitational center. You need a unifying principle. You need a core. We have a core. We are sinners Saved by grace. You know what's incredible about this as a nation? We have been going through such turmoil for over a hundred days, centered on issues like race. And if you believe that all of your identity is wrapped up in those kinds of things, then you really do. You have such a reason to hate one another and fight one another. The Christian gospel is so much deeper than that. While those things are important, my identity, my culture, my background is important, there's something so much more core to who I am. And I want you to see that in this video that I'm about to show you, 50 different nations singing about the core. 